Psalm 139. The Bible says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. By the way, that's a, the Hebrew words there. Possessed means created. It means you possess me because you created me. And the word reigns speaks of the inner organs, the very depths of a person's physical being. God owns the very depths of my physical being. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take Thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with them that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way. Everlasting. Psalm 139 in your Bibles, as we give consideration to the question, is American life sacred in 2021? The question before us is this, is American life sacred in 2021? After four years of making great strides toward restoring the sacredness of life in America, 
Last week, we reversed course and rejected the claim that all life is sacred from the leadership of our country. The bottom line up front for the message this morning, the bluff is simple. Life is sacred. Every life is sacred in America. Every life is sacred. President Donald Trump, for the last four years, was an outspoken advocate in defense of the sacredness of human life in America and around the world. His actions on multiple levels promoted a return to godliness and sanity in the issues of life and abortion. However, the inaugurating of Joe Biden as president of the United States reversed that course and opened the door to policy reversals that in all likelihood will result in the murder of many Americans in the upcoming months. Pro-abortion advocates are ecstatic because elections have consequences. And this election, one of its consequences, will be the loss of innocent life. It will be a supreme cost to human beings who are unwanted as it costs them their very lives. You know, the policies respecting the sacredness of life held by Presidents Trump and Biden were in sharp contrast over the last week, week and a half. News report read just a few days ago regarding President Trump. Ahead of his departure from the White House on Wednesday, President Donald Trump on Sunday issued a presidential proclamation recognizing this upcoming Friday as the National Sanctity of Human Life Day, a proclamation he made during his presidency continually. This, mar- this year marks the fourth year in a row, the article said, that President Trump has recognized National Sanctity of Human Life Day in January. This year, January 22nd, marks the 48th anniversary of the Supreme Court ruling making abortion a national right. The president used the proclamation to speak out against the landmark 1973 ruling, Roe v. Wade, and to promote his administration's accomplishments on behalf of the pro-life movement and call on the American people to respect the sanctity of life. He began by declaring that, quote, every human life is a gift to the world. On National Sanctity of Human Life Day, we celebrate the wonder of human existence and renew our resolve to build a culture of life where every person of every age is protected, valued, and cherished. President Trump's proclamation read. Trump described Roe as a constitutionally flawed ruling that overturned state laws that banned abortion. The proclamation claims that the ruling has resulted in the loss of more than 50 million innocent lives. I believe that's a typo because it's over 60 million now. The proclamation praises the activism of the pro-life movement and its advocates who support policy initiatives that restrict the legality of abortion. Trump stated, quote, 
strong mothers, courageous students and incredible community members and people of faith are a leading are leading a powerful movement to awaken America's conscience and restore the belief that every life is worthy of respect, protection and care. End of quote. The president also cited, quote, the devotion of countless pro-life pioneers as the reason why the rate of abortions has steadily decreased. Today, more than three out of four Americans support restrictions on abortion. Three out of every four. Seventy five percent of Americans, according to that statistic, 75 percent of Americans favor restrictions to abortions. The president devoted a substantial portion of his proclamation to outlining his pro-life record. And he went on uh, to enumerate one of the things he noted was that, quote, at the United Nations, I made clear that global bureaucrats have no business attacking the sovereignty of nations that protect innocent life. Just a few months ago, our nation also joined 32 other countries in signing the Geneva Consensus Declaration, which bolsters global efforts to provide better health care to women, protect all human life, and strengthen families. As we all know, President Trump was the first president in the history of the United States to attend the Right to Life marches in showing support for the sanctity of preborn human life. Trump also criticized the Democrat politicians who fought against legislation that banned most abortions past 20 weeks of gestation. Quote, however, some in Washington are fighting to keep the United States among a small handful of nations, including North Korea and China, that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks. I joined with countless others who believe this was morally and fundamentally wrong. And today I renew my call on Congress to pass legislation prohibiting late term abortion. Of course, we know that goes directly against the Democratic Party platform that is in favor of such abortions. In contrast. President Biden has vowed to codify Roe versus Uh, row into law. Meanwhile, Democrats have called to eliminate the Hyde Amendment, which prevents the use of taxpayer dollars to cover elective abortions. Biden for years supported the Hyde Amendment, but reversed his position in 2019 amid criticism from other Democrat politicians. President Trump said, quote, we resolve to defend the lives of every innocent and unborn child, each of whom can bring unbelievable love, joy, beauty, and grace into our nation and the entire world. I call on the Congress to join me in protecting and defending the dignity of every human life, including those not yet born. As soon as President Biden was inaugurated, the Press noted, quote, Biden readies sweeping rollback of Trump era abortion crackdown. And Alexis McGill Johnson, the president and CEO, CEO of Planned Parenthood, the organization started by Margaret Sanger, the organization that has targeted 
the killing of minority babies, blacks and others. The lady who said that we need to rid the world of the weeds of the blacks and the Jews. She started Planned Parenthood. The present day president and CEO of Planned Parenthood said, quote, we have a ton of work to do to undo the harm over the last four years. But knowing we have champions there who understand what needs to happen in the first 100 days is tremendously exciting. The Democrat Party platform is a platform of death to unborn Americans. And those who profit the most monetarily from those deaths are ecstatic that President Biden will reverse the course of the last four years. Carol Tobias, who is the president of the National Right to Life Committee, said, it's certainly disheartening, but we aren't going to give up. And we will do whatever we can to stop abortion from being promoted. Where do you stand on the issue of abortion? And what do you do to articulate and to defend the sanctity of preborn human life here in America amongst your sphere of influence? Again, the bottom line up front for this message is simple. Every life is sacred. But how do we go about to establish a conviction regarding the sanctity of life? Is this just, an, just one of the list of political issues that we can agree to disagree? We can have this opinion or that opinion? How does a person develop a conviction with regards to whether abortion is murder or just a medical procedure? Whether... A baby in the womb has the right to life or whether the baby in the womb is just a part of a mother's body like an appendix or some other unneeded organ. How does one go about developing conviction as to whether this is a moral issue at all? Well, I believe there are two steps to doing that. And you see them in the little sermon worksheet you receive. Step number one is understand reality. Understand reality because there exists an appalling ignorance about the realities of abortion in America. Advocates of abortion possess an educational monopoly from which to expound their carefully crafted arguments while hiding the hideous reality of the horrors of abortion. And most of America has probably never heard a reasoned explanation of a pro-life position and on the reality of what abortion is. Alan Guttmacher Institute a few years ago said, I quote, each year approximately 1.33 million pregnancies are terminated by abortion in the United States. 49% of pregnancies among American women are unplanned, so half Pregnancies are unplanned, and of those women, half choose to have an abortion. Why? Why would a mother choose abortion? Does a mother understand the choice she's making? Does the American public understand 
what abortion is all about. Another statement, quote, in the United States, 43% of childbearing, of women, 43% of women of childbearing age have had or will have an abortion in their life. 43% of the American women of childbearing age will have or have had abortion. In the United States, 18% In the United States, 18% of all abortions are performed on women who identify themselves as born-again evangelicals. It's almost one in every five, according to that statistical study. Almost one in every five abortions are performed on a woman who claims to be a born-again Christian. Do we understand abortion? Why the confusion? There are two statements I have uh, on the little paper under understand reality. Number one, abortion is an issue regarding the death of a person, of, of people, of people, not appendixes, not unneeded organs. The science is emphatic. The baby in a womb is a baby separate from its mother. For years, abortion advocates attempted to convince the public and did convince the public that a fetus is only a part of the mother's body over which the mother has full control and rights. The change of calling that baby a baby and calling it a fetus instead helped them cloud the issue and lie to the American people and convince people that this is not a baby, it's a fetus. This is just a lump of cells. It's just an organ that is unnecessary in the mother's body. She has the right to discard it if she so chooses. Is a fetus a part of the mother's body? Philosopher Mortimer Adler claimed that the unborn is a part of the mother's body in the same sense of an individual's arm or leg is a part of a living organism. That gives the mother the freedom to do as she pleases with it. Philosopher Mortimer Adler. An editorial in the Oregonian claimed that the fetus is just a part of the pregnant woman's body and compared it to the tonsils or the appendix. The, the campaign of misleading the American people was very successful. Lies to convince people that this is not a baby and you're not killing anything. You're just giving a woman the right to choose whether to have her tonsils out or not. Or to have an appendectomy. The fact is, however, that every body part shares a common genetic code with the rest of the body. But an unborn baby has its own genetic code that is distinctly different from the mother. Her tonsils have the same genetic code as she does. Her appendix has the same genetic code that she does. The baby in her womb does not have 
the same genetic code that she does. Because the baby in the womb is a distinct, different human being from the mother that's carrying the little baby. John Jefferson Davis stated, It's a well-established fact that a genetically distinct human being is brought into existence at conception. And once fertilization takes place, the zygote is its own entity. Genetically distinct from both mother and father, the newly conceived individual possesses all the necessary information for self-directed development. Did you hear that? Self-directed development and will proceed to grow in the usual human fashion given time and nourishment. It is simply untrue that the unborn is merely a part of the mother's body. In addition to being genetically distinct from the time of conception, the unborn possesses separate circulatory, nervous, and endocrine systems. Professor A.W. Liley at New Zealand, who is known as the father of fetology, was among the many pioneer in the achievements of understanding and, and accomplishing the first interuterine blood transfusion. Dr. Liley, the father of fetology, said, and I quote, Philosophically, we must accept that the conceptus is, in a very large measure, in charge of the pregnancy. In my layman terms, that means the baby's in control of the pregnancy, not mom. The baby is determining the rate, the timing, and the development of its own, of its own development. Biologically, at no stage can we subscribe to the view that the fetus is a mere appendage of the mother. It is the embryo who stops his mother's periods and makes her womb habitable by developing a placenta and a protective capsule of fluid for himself or herself. He or she regulates his own amniotic fluid volume, and although women speak of their water breaking or their membranes rupturing, these structures belong to the fetus. And finally, it is the fetus, not the mother, who decides when labor should be initiated. The baby is a separate human being. The mother's body is merely the house in which the baby lives. Just like after birth, the house on Center Street with a baby's room will be the house in which the baby lives. Before birth, the mother's body is the house in which the baby lives. It's the same baby in both houses. And if the owner of the house on Center Street decides to burn the house down, he has no right to decide to leave the baby in the house while he burns it down. And neither does a woman have the right to decide to terminate the life of the human being that lives inside her body. Peter, Dr. Peter Nathaniels of Cornell University concurs. He says that the unborn's brain sends a message to his own pituitary gland, which in turn stimulates the adrenal cortex to secrete a hormone that stimulates the mother's uterus to contract. A woman goes into labor not because her body is ready to surrender the unborn child, but because the unborn child is ready to leave her body. 
that human being living inside his or her home. It's been his or her home for nine months. Says it's time. I want to go outside to play. And the baby makes that decision. You see, the word fetus comes from a Latin term. It means offspring or young one. It doesn't mean appendage. It is a Latin term that speaks of an offspring. And the unborn baby, the offspring, the fetus, is a real live human being. Scott Clausendorf described the difference between a preborn and a newborn using the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. S, he's describing the baby in the womb and the baby that has just left the womb. He is describing the difference between the two houses they live in. The, word, the letter S stands for size. Are you a person because of how big you are? Now that you're outside the womb and you grow up and you're bigger, are you now a person because of your size than you used to be when you were smaller and living inside the womb? Size doesn't make personhood or create a right to live. L stands for the level of development. Are you a person because of how developed you are? A college student that can work higher math problems compared to a first grader who struggles with one plus one? Is the level of development what makes you a person? Is the college student a person but the first grader or preschool uh, person not a, a person? E stands for environment. Are you a person because of where you reside? In a house, apartment, or a mother's body? And D stands for dependency. Are you a person because you're not dependent on anyone? There are a lot of people who are very dependent on others. Who we would not be so crash as to say they're not a person. Because they can't provide for themselves. S-L-E-D. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of despondence, uh, uh, dependency does not make a person a person. A person is a person because God created them that way. It doesn't matter what their size is, what their level of development is, what their environment is, or whether they're dependent on somebody else. If God created the person, the person has a right to live. And their life is sacred. The second statement, understand reality. The reality is they lied. They lied. Abortion is an issue of the death of people, not tonsils or appendixes. Abortion is an issue regarding the death of real live people, Americans here in America. You'll develop a conviction on abortion if you understand reality, scientific reality, and don't believe the lies of the abortion industry. The second statement we have to understand is this. Abortion is an issue driven by a culture of immorality. There would be no abortion advocacy by reasonable people if babies were not the product of the sacred sexuality that they worship. If babies came into the world in any other way, nobody 
would advocate their murder. But sex is God in America. And it's the perverted immorality of a culture that will put up with the murder of defenseless little human beings because we don't like the product of what we worship. We will worship. And we will find a way to get rid of the consequences. America is drunk on the wine of immorality. And unplanned and unwanted babies that come as the product of the worship of their God must be eliminated. Women who refuse to accept the responsibility for the decision they made and irresponsible, selfish men who refuse to accept the responsibility and pay for what they did. In a moral culture, we would not have abortion. We need to understand that abortion is a quick fix for an immoral culture. Well, I believe one of the big steps to developing a conviction regarding abortion is to understand reality and understand understand reality by understanding that abortion deals with real people and that abortion is condoned because of immorality. Those help rational people develop a conviction regarding abortion. I want you to see a, a, a second step to developing a conviction, and that is to understand God. We as Christians have have a, a step up on the unsaved. We know God. We have a book that tells us how God thinks. We have a book that tells us what's right and wrong. I mean, an unsaved person should be able to look at the science of birth and come up with the conclusion, this is murder. An unsaved person ought to be able to study the culture and what has happened in the culture over the last 50 years and come to the conclusion that... We have grown to accept this because we have grown to expect immorality as a right. And that is taught in the public school systems to little children. It is a right. Don't let anyone tell you there's anything wrong with this. Sexuality is preached as a right to children through education to condition them and prepare them for a free sexual expression in their lifetime. Anyone who can study culture and sees what's happened and is happening should be able to come to the conclusion there's something wrong with this picture. But we as Christians have something far greater than that. We can read. We can read God's Word. I want you to see the importance of understanding God. There's three statements there. The first one is God creates life. That, that, that settles the issue right there. God creates life. We read in our Bibles in Genesis chapter number 1 and in verse number 24, these words. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle, creeping thing, beast, after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, cattle after their kind. That which creepeth after his kind. It was good. And God said, let us make man in our image. 
God created man in His image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and so forth. Verse 27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He him, male and female created He them. God creates human life and He creates that life in His image. We're made in the image and likeness of God. That has horrendous ramifications in the abortion industry. When an abortionist kills a little human being that he has just extracted from its home, he is killing the image of God. That catapults this issue to a far more grave issue. Because over 60 million times in America since 1973, we have murdered the image of God in America. God created mankind and he created mankind after his own image. He put the stamp of his own existence into the DNA of humanity. We're made with a moral likeness to God. I'm speaking of creation before the fall. We were rational human beings with moral sensitivities. We were stamped with the image of God's morality and His thinking and who He is. We were made like God. The fall broke the morality of our imprint. And salvation restores it. But we bear the mark of the image of our Creator. God created life. In the text that you may be uh, turned to in Psalm 139, I mentioned when I read it that that verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins. God, you, you have the most inner beings of my life because you created me, is what that Hebrew phrase says. You possess me by creation, right to the core of my being. I am yours. You created me. Verse 14 says we're supposed to praise God. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knoweth. Do you notice the word know? That my soul knoweth right well. He was no doubter. He was no agnostic. He took the words and truths of God at face value. He knew That he was the creation of God and he praised God for God's amazing work in creating him. Verse number 15 describes the secret place of the womb of the mother as the place where the the human being is developed and, 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 and all of the systems of the human being grows and develops. Verse number 16 says that. God, God's eyes saw me when I was unperfect, when my members, he wrote my members down while they were still being developed, blue eyes, brown hair, uh, five foot six, and, and, and going down now. I hope my mom this morning, my mom said, am I shrinking? She said, I just feel like I'm, you know, that happens to us when we get a certain age, we start shrinking. God 
put all this together, planned it, made the decisions. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, a great artist will often labor alone in his studio and not suffer his work to be seen until it's finished. Even so did the Lord fashion us where no eye beheld us and the veil was not lifted till every member was complete. And then we were born for the world to see what God has been doing for nine months in the development of the person he created nine months earlier. The psalmist in verse 17 and 18 said, God, you're you're. How precious are God's thoughts. God thinks. And how precious are His thoughts. God created life. Number two, God directs life. God directs life. This, this last week, last week, I had asked the church family to meditate on God as our Creator. And to meditate on God regarding His attribute of love. God, because He loves me, directs my life. He loves the pre-born baby living inside his mother's womb. He loves the loving mother carrying the baby with excitement. And he also loves the stressed out mother who doesn't want the baby for whatever her reasons. And he loves her. And he wants to be involved in her life as he has been involved in the development of the human being he created in her womb. In the womb. God carefully designed you just the way you are. Why? Well, verse number uh, Psalm, um, Psalm 8. Uh, well, time, due to time, I won't turn to it. But Psalm 8, verse 3 to 9 tells us that God thinks about us when we're in the mother's womb. He thinks about us. He is involved in our lives And he has a plan for us. God is a God of love, directs our life from the very beginning of our creation in our mother's womb. God thinks about us, visits us, is involved in us, and has a plan for us. And then the final statement, God protects human life. God protects human life. I also asked the church family last week to meditate on God with his name El Shaddai. God, the mighty, powerful provider. God provides for us what we need in life. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God is giving instruction through Noah regarding the emerging family leaving the ark and the new society that they would develop. And he made it very clear that if anybody kills a human being, they must sacrifice their own life. Life for life for murder. That was established by God to the new human family that would spread across the face of the earth when Noah left the ark. To destroy human life is to attack God's image. Why was human life so protected Because we're created in God's image after his likeness for his purposes. And he doesn't take to the destruction of that life. In conclusion, I would say, why would a person attack God's image in the womb and overthrow God's purpose for bringing that person into the world? It's because we are dealing with a war 
between two worldviews. God versus atheism. The value of God's image versus the denial of God's existence. A culture of seeking God's purpose in every life versus a culture of immorality and selfishness that knocks anyone out of the way that gets in the way of my plans. We live in a world where there's a war between two worldviews that is very real and that impacts us every day of our lives. So what should I do? Well, number one, exalt a high view of life. Understand reality and understand God and to develop a conviction on the sanctity of every human life, regardless of the color of the skin, the ethnicity of the person, regardless of where they live, regardless of whether they're born or not yet born. Develop a view of the sanctity of life by which you exalt every human being. Number two, help somebody who's carrying a human being in her body and doesn't want it. Help her. Help her. Help her know that that's not an appendage. That's a human being she's carrying. Help her to know that God created that human being and loves that human being and loves her. Use your life to fulfill God's purpose in creating you. You survived your, your uh, time in the womb. God created you and you lived in that womb for nine months. And God created you because he was interested in you and had a plan for your life. The way you have a, 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 a strong conviction on the sanctity of life is live out your life according to why God gave you life. You've had an abortion. Know that God loves you. And God wants to forgive you. He wants to help you through the emotional scars, memories, and pain that that decision brought into your life. He wants to help you. And He will heal the awful trauma that your sin caused. If you'll seek Him, He said, you will find me when you seek for me with all your heart. And finally, realize that you are precious to God. Whether you're saved or unsaved, you are precious to God. You survived your conception and birth. God gave you life at conception, brought you into the world at birth. And, but because of your sinful life, you're under God's judgment. And you're facing the terrible consequences of God's judgment upon your sin. But God, because of His love, came to earth, took your place, paid the eternal penalty for your sinful decisions in life. God loves you and wants to save you from your sin. He paid the judgment price. He offers you eternal life. He wants to save you. The greatest way to develop the conviction of the sanctity of life is to get saved and fulfill the purpose for which God gave you life. God help us in America as Christian people to not be on the sidelines but to develop a strong conviction on what this is all about and to use our lives 
to forward God's purposes and plans and exalt his love for life.